Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a Friday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is May 6th. Andy, how are we doing? Brendan, I'm doing wonderful. Happy, Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy May the 6th. May the 6th be with you. <laughs> We're here. Uh, we got through Star Wars Day, uh, barely. I mean, as soon as I talked about that openly, I was getting hammered with texts and everybody's screenshotting the emails from different co-workers that they got at their places of employment about may the 4th be with you but we're through it we got through it we're, we're on may the 6th now um there, very there exciting is, weekend ahead what? you know there is a, a a big news big news leishman is is using all parts of the field today <laughs> i have not watched this video he hit a cold shank a hard shank at, at out TPC of a bunker Picard. yeah he just okay. was he's just shooting one down the right field line you know <laughs> Almost took out Corey Connors, but that's you got to be you got to be aware when you're on the hot corner. <laughs> uh, he's guarding the line. Yeah. Had he been off the bag, he might have taken one off the dome. Huh? Playing more off the bag, he might have <laughs> taken one up there. All right, well that's good. That's good. You love it when you have that kind of skill to control the bat and send it to all directions and at all velocity. You know that that's what you could do. Work it both ways. All right. Breaking news. That that's good. I'm glad we got there. I have other breaking news. I shocking. According to SI.com, Greg Norman was officially denied his special exemption request into the the Open Championship or the British Open, as it's known. I know that will stun people uh, to hear that Norman was not allowed to play. Unbelievable, um, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of. I feel like he's been disrespected. I I hope that disrespect. Uh, you know, he's disrespected when he wrote that letter for Tiger. I hope we get an email to the Open Championship that starts, surely you jest. Surely you jest. Um, <laughs> a lot of, lot of happenings. So this is going to be a little different Friday episode. We have an interview with Shane Ryan, author of a book coming out next week on the Ryder Really Cup. a flashback Friday. It is a flashback say. Friday. We're about gonna, his new book. <clears throat> We're going to shoehorn that in. Don't worry about that. Uh, good friends at Precision Pro. Our, our great friends at Precision Pro. We're not timely in responding to email, but we are enthusiastic about e-meeting, you know, when we do. Um, but we had a, a good e-meet with them. This is kind of just happening weekly now, right? The PGL, you know, writing open letters. People talking about requesting uh releases for the Saudi part of it. We've got, you know, Norman just is weekly like news making item, right? He, he pops in and out talking about how much money they've lost. Um, I, it's just like consuming the game, right? I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and I, I eh, I'm going to save this for another time. It's an evergreen what? take. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it another time. I, uh, well, well how right, are you going to do that? How are you, how are you going to do that to me? How are you going to do that to the people? <laughs> I think the Netflix series, there has to be a Phil Mickelson episode. 
an entire Phil Mickelson episode. He hasn't agreed to do the show, but if you don't have the people in golf talking about Phil, who, because, and this is the point of the take, he's dominated the season more than anyone else without playing, really. Without playing. He has owned this entire golf season. Are you saying he's at the top of the PIP rankings? No, I'm not. I'm just saying everything, way we've thought about this golf season, and it has little to do with actual golf. I'm not saying, he's not the entire season, but, you know, he's been the most prominent I would say story of this year. So I was wondering, like, how can you tell the story of golf in 2022 season without a Phil Mickelson episode? Anyways, that's my take. So it it relates to sort of another week, another round of stuff here. Uh, Your boy, Westy, kind of walking right into it. Excellent questioning. I I think it was Jamie Weir of Sky uh, who, you know, I watched it. They didn't identify him. Sounded like him. And he, he chimed in that he was doing the interview. Um, Sort of not letting West, not, you know, not confronting him, but just not letting Westy regurgitate the usual bullshit line and say, like, you know, just because the F1 goes there, I mean, you could argue the two wrongs don't make a right. A very fair follow up question. And Westy walks right into, like, well, they're Saudi knows they've got issues and they're trying to get better through sport, which is like, honestly, like the rote almost definition of, of what they're trying to do with the sports washing. Um, so tough times on Westy Island. He's asked for a release. Dick Bland's asked for a release, which well, comes as no surprise. Can we talk about the Westy thing a little bit? <clears throat> what are you going to try and rationalize it? Like his drop, his crooked drop at no. DPC Sawgrass last <laughs> Not year? Not rationalizing anything anymore. Uh-huh. This is the, the pitfalls of when, you know, he famously talked about having never read a book. Like that's been something that's like trumpeted. <laughs> Who shared that? With us, a guest, someone in Grantland uh, was. It's in a Grantland interview. I feel like. So yeah, you know, never. All right. It's like one of his. Like he, he carries it as a badge of honor. And I'm just gonna say this that. KVB, I think, said that he got Probably. outsmarted here in this interview. He got walked down the plank. He literally. It was like a. Like he was blindfolded and he didn't know where he was going, and yeah. the the person. Jamie Weir just walked him right into where he wanted to go. And Westy was too too dumb to even know where he oh. was going. And, I mean, Jamie Weir, excellent interview. Just got him right to where he wanted. Got him to say exactly what you wanted him to say, which is like, hey. We're sports washing. We're sports washing. You get a lot of money. So we're getting the talking points here. The next round of talking points. Independent contractor deal was one he hit on. That other things are happening there. Snooka and darts. Or <laughs> snooka, dots. <laughs> he did at one point call it me job. It's me job. Um, uh, so those are the talking points. It's a right? sad day on Westy Island. I'm, I'm t- I, uh, homeowners have no value. It's yeah, over. Real estate prices have tanked. We had our run. It's um, over. It's just an oil field. It's just a barren wasteland. It's a desert. There's no hey. no great fruits. There's nothing <laughs> left. It's no, over. It's in- inhabitable? Uninhabitable? I yeah, it right. is. It's been right. devastated. It's been Anything leveled. else on the Saudi stuff? Did you read that PGL memo that yes. they had everybody... Now talk about talk about an organization operating from a position of no leverage. <laughs> 
Like, talk about just, just a, a feeble plea, an open letter. Um, a feeble plea for some relevance. I do sympathize a little bit where, you know, there's this backlash <coughs> about the Saudis being involved. A small part. That's the thing is now when we go back and re relook like, oh, God, I would be just thrilled if the Saudis were just a small part of, of this whole thing. And, yeah, sure, you know, they go sure. back to the drawing board because of that. And the Saudis just steal their idea, you know. And this right. is like a thing when you're trying to do an entrepreneurial thing or your startup, like, you know, when you're a small startup and just starting, the thing that you're worried the most about is somebody stealing your idea. And the Saudis did that. And, and now it's just the fledgling just, uh, organization that's trying to have some relevance please, in the game. Yeah, trying to get their message out there any way they can. I think, like, I don't know the guys involved, really, but it feels like we have... Maybe guys with the expertise and sort of intelligence, uh, but no cash or no sort of momentum. They have some cash, I guess. And then like the guys with all the cash and part of my French, just a bunch of chuckle fucks uh, with like hanging around doing all this. Like, honestly, like, honestly, with the more money to just step on their, you know what? over and over again and still succeed it's kind of interesting how like the just the, the money and the the sort of operational intelligence and this is not have not lined up this is not to say anything of sort of the source of money uh it just nothing's come together to make this sort of appealing when we're all we're not opposed to some sort of upstart uh challenging That's the tour thing. for sure so the 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 thing is when Here's here's the reality. In a way, golf has made its bed with the Saudis because of the backlash it had to the original PGL, which there was some Saudi influence in it, but it was more of a, you know, it was more of a, a setup where it was similar to the to the way, you know. F1 racing is where the Saudis are a part of it, but yeah. they aren't, they are not the whole thing. Yeah. And yeah. because golf reacted the way they did to it, we now have made this bed of where we have just the, the pure Saudi product. Yep. All right, just so said, Shit. We're just doing it on our own. And it just, that's the thing that you said it so eloquently there, the chuckle fucks. I mean, this is everything you hear about the pe like. This isn't even the people writing Norman. This is just everybody. It's just I don't know. Not not a not a lot. So, of do you think we should know. apply for media um, credentials Credential? now or later for the for for the events? I don't know. You probably need to get it out there now. You could, <laughs> you know, get on the road, start driving out to Dick Harvest Farms, and you know, watch that whatever event it is. Like in June, July, whatever. That's September. I don't remember where that is. Um, I don't know. I'm sure we'll have more on this on Monday. More guys will ask for releases. No one, you know, I, I don't know who we have confirmed. Mickelson, Westy, Dick Bland, and that's about it. Um, oh, can I have a separate tangent here? Who asked for a Robert Allenby rehabilitation tour? Why is he getting articles about his, you know, Come His, on, just going after the Australian Australian uh, outlets. 
Oh, is that guy, where I saw it in the New York just, Post? Maybe they aggregated keep, it. You just keep popping the Aussies. I see it aggregated by uh, Mark Sanchez. I don't know if that's the quarterback written at the New York Post. <laughs> after, all the, after all the negative articles the New York Post wrote about Mark Sanchez, he's now <laughs> writing for him. Oh, it's Evan, Evan Priest. Okay. All right. I see. I see. Although, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that Robert Allenby needed the floor again. I don't think he needed uh, – not that, you know, I'm not trying to cancel anybody or – you know, mute somebody out, but I just don't think he needed a rehabilitation tour. Anyways, to be shocked to know that what happened is still a mystery to him. They're still out there trying to find the guys who, who you know abducted him. Guess what happens when you black out? <laughs> it remains a mystery to you forever. <laughs> uh, you can be told by friends what happened. But still, the clarity of the situation, as you remember other events in your life, remain a mystery. That is, at the very core basis, what <laughs> blacking out means. Uh, I God, he's got to regret taking that selfie, sending it around. It's on every article. <laughs> like, it just lives on it. Like, he shared that willingly. Like, that selfie. I'm just looking at that's, it now. Still, still. <laughs> That's um, a man right. not understanding how social media works yeah. and how the internet works and how if you post <laughs> something, it never goes away. Oh, all right. Anything else you want to get to? Rory talked I didn't about expect, the fall. I did not expect to An talk Allenby about B today. Well, you can never get enough B. Rory McIlroy speaking at the Wells Fargo Championship. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What do you say about the fall schedule? Uh, like basically it wouldn't I'm be sorry, popular amongst the rest of my what? I just was really reliving a blackout. I blacked oh. out at my bachelor party. Oh, I, I, I passed out on my, my best friend's floor. Okay. And, you know, I apparently threw up in an Uber. I've all never right, thrown up in an right. Uber. Okay. You know, okay. I don't know any, you know, this is all news to me. Why are we sharing this? Okay. But this is the thing is that I don't know any of the details. I don't know what happened. I've been Still told mystery. this happened, but I don't know. Much like Robert Allenby, I don't know what happened. Like, I cannot tell you exactly what happened. Well, as long as your your face was in, you know, I was fine. Unharmed. That's good. I yeah. had a bad hangover. But, right. but anyways, on to Rory in the fall. Wait, did you have any do you have any actual salient points about the PGL memo outside of their like grasping at straws? Like it's the same model we've heard them talk about. That you I mean the, this is the just two players can own part of it and I mean it uses the term bullshit in there. It says like, you know, Rory getting the you know, sending it to Allen and Company for an actual I don't know what they did, like profitability an audit study, effectively. A model. Yeah. It was like How about Allen and Co. getting a free free ad do you think the tour has shook him down to be some sort of uh official partner i don't know if i've ever seen them on the official partner list the tour official partner list is growing these press releases i get for like the official like it has nothing to do with golf anyways yeah allen and company did an audit allen investments pgl PGA Tour welcomes DreamFinder Homes as an official marketing what? partner. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? I don't DreamFinder Homes. What's that getting us? I it's a just... Jacksonville company. 
Well, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. I don't. I'm I don't understand what now. this is. Is this Let's like a? Is, are they trying to fight with Zillow? PGA Tour <laughs> and Quintar expand augmented reality <laughs> relationship. What, I mean, are we doing? what does that mean? What are we doing right now? I don't know. We're why, bouncing around. Why are we talking about this? We have an interview to deal with. with. Uh, do you have Rory thoughts on Rory's fall schedule? He kind of popped the entire membership. He's like, the fall schedule shouldn't exist. Well, it, he just illuminates all the issues with the PGA Tour. Yeah. Like, he effectively says, should the fall exist? No. It's hard. It's very hard for me to stand here and say I'd like all the fall events to go away and play three or four of these suggested tournaments that they're thinking about because that's good for me, but that's not good for the entire membership. So I have to try to look at things that are not going to benefit the that are going to benefit the entire membership and the entire tour and not just what benefits me or the top players. All right. You know what that was code for? I got to look out for Kelly Craft. Does he, though? Does he have to? I guess he does in his position of pack. See, the thing is, is that <laughs> the best thing he could do for golf would be not to look out. He, this is the thing. He's the pa- he's the president or whatever the hell the position's called. Chairman, the chairman of the, yeah. of the pack. He's, he's the chairman of the players. He's not the chairman of golf. And this is the thing. This is why, you know, this is why... Committees at country clubs that make fucking terrible decisions. It's why boards at municipal park boards and municipalities make awful decisions. Is because they're looking out for all these other constituents and not just golf as a whole. And that's the th- the thing I will say on the back half of the PGL thing. I think there's merits to the to the PGL and like the, what they could bring well, to yeah. golf. Like I uh, this sure. idea of this format. Yeah. I don't know if I'm crazy about it, but I'm interested to see how it would work. I'm not interested to see how it works with the Saudis at the helm. But like this is the thing, is like the the PGL is bad for the membership of the PGA tour. And that's why they're probably frustrated. This kind of goes hand in hand with Rory's comments about the fall. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, the PGA Tour is looking out for their status quo. It's looking out for members 75 through 125, which sucks for golf fans. It's yeah. why we have a Wells. It's why we have back-to-back weeks with two players in the top 20. Two. Mm-hmm. Two. Over to Wells Fargo. Two players. Over there. Great like, event. When All you DC legitimately think about it, they can't even put a top 10 player in the morning wave and the afternoon wave. We can't get a top 10 player playing in TV coverage on Thursday and Friday. That, I was thinking about this when I was driving the other day. It's like, how messed up is that? That they don't have a top 10 player to put in each of the TV windows. That's a joke. And this is the problem with the PGA Tour. Yep. Yep. Um, It's not great. Not great. Anything else you want to hit on before we get to Shane Ryan? You want to go I mean, back to Robert Allenby? You want to do 18-hole leaderboards? Matthew Wolf, Denny McCarthy, Oh, I do Rockville want to talk zone. about Matthew Wolf. Rockville zone, Denny McCarthy. Home game. Could be the biggest home win since LeBron won for the Cavs. Uh, okay, go ahead. What do you got? Um, I saw Daniel Rappaport tweeted out some quotes from Matthew Wolf, and it's just crazy. The mental health thing is, is nuts. Is um, nuts. The mental health thing is nuts. Yeah, I'm not saying well, this very I, eloquently. Significant. Yeah, 
But we're talking about a guy that like, and I think this is like one of the difficulties of pro golf and especially and tennis, like tennis. It's been something that has been really prevalent. <clears throat> Individual sports are really, Solitude. really hard. Yeah. Like they're really hard. And I think when you look at Matthew Wolf, like his quotes were effectively to the point, I'm not here to win. I'm here to have fun. Like I'm realizing that my mood, and this is the thing is like, we've, we've seen this at tournaments. My mood's impacting not only me, but the people I'm with and the players I'm playing with in my group. You know, there, he was getting consoled at the masters, like around the golf course. And this is serious stuff. Mental health, like mental health is, is legit. And it's magnified when you're in a individual competition. And I think when I think about Matthew Wolf, this might have happened whether or not, you know, we did, you know, but like there were such lofty expectations placed on Matthew Wolf um, from the moment he turned professional, really before he turned professional. Yeah, I'd say from the moment like Oklahoma State, like it's while he's still there. And this is always like just as as golf fans, as as golf, right? Like it's a big part of being a professional is being a professional and being able to handle life as a professional and the expectations that come with it. And, and I think like, it's just, it's just something that I'll remember of it in as like, you know, just be careful about putting too much expectation on somebody before they've really done anything. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, it's like anything, you know, it's like when you hire somebody for a new job is having, you know, like you're going to know what what is going on three months later. And it's probably like they're going to be better at, at things or they're going to be, you know, you know, better at things that in, in that you didn't even think that they could do, you know, is a lot yeah. of times what I've I've found. It's like it's like, wow, the you know, I didn't even know how good this person would be at this, you know. And yeah. it's it's in the sense of that, like, I think like that's the hard thing. And I think it's we're only going more of this path with how young the tour is getting. Mm-hmm. And we just have to be careful before they do it for a sustained period. I mean, you could pull up so many articles about Matthew Wolf changing golf. What was the reality show? I can't think of it. The college reality show on Golf Channel. Remember, they did like try to do a Ricky's hard show and yeah. Driving, drive on. I feel like no, it was drive. Shit. It wasn't drive, drive to survive. It was uh, <laughs> God. What something was with it? drive in it? So I think I don't know, but yeah, he. That's like where it really became. I mean, I wouldn't say that was like an insanely popular show, but larger golf audience really got exposed to him. Starting and I, even there. And here's the thing: I bag on seventy-five <clears throat> through one twenty-five all the time, but those guys that are there consistently are pros. You know. Mm-hmm. Like in that, I think it's hard to be a professional golfer. It's really hard. And we underrate how challenging the game is to play at a high level as a professional and because of the mental aspect. And I think Matthew Wolf, like, I really hope he like succeeds and, and does well, but it's, it's really, it, it sucks seeing him at this spot, but I hope like, I hope he's on the right path out. Yeah. Yeah. This seems like somebody would, you know, we want to succeed. I mean, we, we don't want anyone to fail, but we certainly golf would be better with Matthew Wolf uh, prominently playing well. Uh, all right, let's do an ad read for our friends at Precision Pro Golf. This is Flashback Friday. Um, 
It features an interview with Shane Ryan in which things from the past are discussed. Yes. Namely, 1983 Ryder Cup, 2016 Ryder Cup. There's a lot of discussion about the future and like future villains. And we're trying to pepper him with conspiracy theories about the PGA Tour. Listen, I don't um, know how much we talked about his book. We did talk a lot about a lot of amusing things. But I, I think I'm excited for it. I don't have it yet. I, anyway. You know, I'm not a crooked advanced oh, copy media person. It's that's that's not true. It's being sent to you. We, we are crooked, but well, we're not crooked I'm in line that we read it. All these interviews you hear with authors like, oh, I read the book. It's great. And there's no way these people read these books before they do all these interviews. I think that's bullshit. That's the thing. Yeah, I haven't. We'll read be honest. We have not read it. I do. I'm excited to read it. I will say anybody that has not gotten Shane's slaying the tiger that I, I read that before I was ever in golf media. And I thought that was enthralling. That was when yeah, I was, point. you know, quintessential casual golf fan. I read that and I loved, I like that. You know, I'm not a huge reader. I'm kind of, I'm more of Westie <laughs> than, you know, I am of. Who, yeah. the, the Troy Merritt. Yeah. I Just read like a book t- a year. Legitimately, maybe two, maybe three. Depends on, you yeah. know. But anyways, that is a book that I read cover to cover. When I get into a book, I really get into it. And I got into that one. So well, the, if it's the anything like for that. Precision Pro. Oh, yeah. Into the I ad forgot read about We're for on Shane Ryan's. So anyways, the point is we discuss things from the past with Shane. So this will serve as Flashback Friday. And the sponsor of Flashback Friday all year. Double ad read. Is Precision Pro Golf. And you can go to that URL, precisionprogolf.com. Use the promo code SHOTGUN20. You get $20 off an NX9 rangefinder. I was playing with the No Lane Up boys at Media Day on Monday. They were shooting their guy, you know, had their guys up and out. And, and you know, they're big Precision Pro folks. Um, we had a call with Precision Pro today. Just a wonderful, wonderful gent named Nick. They're, you know, coming in, helping us around the U.S. Open. Uh, they supported the podcast, supported a lot of hopefully like you know, independent golf media types that you, you guys out there like, so we can support them. If you need a range finder, go to precisionprogolf.com. You know, um, it, it's, they figured out how to thread the needle with value, right? You're not playing an arm and a leg uh, for a quality product. So, and it's a free great, lifetime battery replacement. It's I like a great. That. I had a caddy at the country club, my guy, Piero. <laughs> He had, yeah. the, he had the Precision Pro. I felt at home. He did? Yeah. Uh-oh. I like it. I like it. Um, all right. So go to precisionprogolf.com. Use promo code SHOTGUN20. Let's get to our interview with Shane Ryan. You'll get all the details about the book. I'm going to say this was a good one. You always pop me for saying this was a good, like before people have listened. I'm not saying I was good or you were good, but Shane is entertaining and insightful. All right. Let's get to him. All right. We now welcome in Shane Ryan. Uh, he is a writer at Golf Digest, a golf media uh, personality, savant, expert of some sort, a Ryder Cup enthusiast and chronicler. And he joins us now to talk about his new book. We've been following his golf writing and work for not quite a decade, but I think almost a decade here. Uh, he joins us now. He's got a new book on the Ryder Cup coming out. Shane, thank you for joining us. Tell us about the book, its title, and where we can get it. Yeah, thank you guys. Um, the book is titled The Cup They Couldn't Lose. Um, it is the story of the Whistling Straits Ryder Cup, but also kind of the story of the modern Ryder Cup in general, starting in the 80s when Europe started to really dominate. So it's a story of how Europe became so good, and then it's the story of how America figured it out, really. 
Um, and that second story culminates obviously in Whistling Straits with that huge blowout. So yeah, you know, you can get it at all the normal book places. Basically, you can depending on you know <laughs> what your morals are, you can get it at yeah. Amazon, you can yeah. get it at Hachette, you can get it at Barnes and Noble or whatever variety of indie booksellers there are. Conglomerate is it gonna maybe? is it gonna be at all the indie bookstores? Can I can I go into you know a bookstore in a random town and say I, I want Shane Ryan's book and they're gonna have it? You wouldn't believe the demand I'm getting for this book <laughs> from indie bookstores just in like Portland, Oregon. Portland, it's insane how many books Portland, Oregon has ordered. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know how indie bookstores are with golf books, man. <laughs> they load up. They load up. That's how they make their money. So all right, the yeah. cup they couldn't lose mm-hmm. is the title. It will be out Tuesday. I don't know when we're publishing this, but Tuesday, is that right? May? Tuesday, May 10th. uh, It'll be out. Yeah. Um, And pre-order it. I assume at some of the large pre-order too, right? You can totally pre-order it. Yep. They, I insisted on that with the The publisher. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I need pre-orders for this baby. And they, uh, they obliged. So yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Shane, thank you for joining us. So uh, I I got a question. Go ahead. For you. In this, you know, this world of golf that we live in, sure. oftentimes monetary rewards are are crammed down our throats as to, you know, what the intrigue of a week to week thing. In your opinion, just in general with the Ryder Cup, how is this uh, zero dollar exhibition match come to captivate the world of golf for you know, effectively a Ryder Cup year, an entire year, the subplot storyline is the Ryder Cup. And then the week of it becomes, you know, arguably the biggest spectacle in in golf for the year. I I think I I compare the Masters as kind of the annual Kentucky Derby of golf where it rises to the, you know, forefront of all of sports. But the Ryder Cup, I think, is the, the other event that does that as well. Yeah, and I think it's one of the coolest stories in sports. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, because if you go back to um, you know, this used to be it started in 1927, but it used to be the U.S. versus the U.K. And there were 50 years where the U.S. almost never lost. I think lost one time in, in 57 years or something. So you go back to 1980, um, 1981, right after uh, they basically brought in all of Europe to try to make this thing more competitive. In 79 and 81, it was the European team and the U.S. still just completely destroyed them. Uh, and so there was a point before Tony Jacklin took over, um, this British golfer who became kind of their George Washington figure who turned things around. But there was a point before that where it really, really seemed like the Ryder Cup was going to die. Absolutely nobody cared about it, had no interest in the U.S. especially. Um, and there's kind of this funny story where there was this bank, the Sun Alliance Bank, that sponsored it on the European side. And the only reason they sponsored it is because the owner was a friend of the prime minister and the prime minister was kind of like, it's your national patriotic duty to like sponsor the Ryder Cup and keep it going. And then after 1981, he was like, this is stupid. I'm no, I'm no longer doing this. I don't care like what anybody says. It's a bad event. Like Europe, you know, Europe can never win. So he backed out. And the at the time, the British PGA and the sort of fledgling European tour were desperately looking for sponsors. And they did for two years and couldn't find anything. There was this guy, Colin Snape, who was their executive secretary, And he came back to his board after all this huge hunt. And all he had was this offer for cigarette coupons uh, that were redeemable. Like that was going to be the sponsor of the Ryder Cup. And they were like, we can't do that because we don't want cigarettes associated with the event. So that doesn't work. So we've got nothing. 
And so he had this like desperate last minute trip where he went up to Perth, Scotland to meet with um, this company called Bell's Scotch Whiskey. And just out of nowhere, this dude, Raymond McKell, who owned Bell's was like, yeah, I'm going to give you 300,000 pounds. I want to sponsor it, not just for 83, but I want to sponsor it uh, for 83, which was in the US. And I want to sponsor it for 85. So they got this last minute infusion of cash and... Uh, part of the deal was like Raymond McKell said, I want my name, Bell Scotch whiskey all over everything in America, especially because he wanted to expand his market. And so they had to take that to the PGA of America and try to sell that. And PGA of America, they weren't thrilled, but the European tour was like, if we don't have this, it's done. Like there's not going to be a Ryder cup anymore. Uh, so they accepted it. Uh, anyway, the Ryder cup continues and they needed something to change immediately. And the story of how Tony Jacklin transform this thing from a 50 year massacre into something where Europe all of a sudden was winning and then would go on to win for a couple decades is something I cover really extensively in the book. Um, and, you know, I just think it's like one of those amazing sort of reversal sports stories period. And to answer your question about, you know, why is this something that has captivated so much again for another decade after Europe started winning, the U S didn't care. Uh, and only gradually as the European fans started to win Ryder Cups and they started to kind of be their European selves and have these raucous like cheering sections and everything went crazy. By the time 1991 came, the U.S. golfers were so pissed off at how they were treated in Europe and at having lost a bunch of times that we get to the war by the shore in Kiowa and the Iraq war was going on at the same time. So there was all this like patriotic vibes going on. And all of a sudden, like the fans showed up, they riled them up and, you know, they were doing things like a local DJ told fans to call the European hotel in the middle of the night to like, to like wake them up and rile them. And you had this like crazy, crazy, crazy tense Ryder cup. NBC had just bought the rights to it. And uh, Dick Ebersol, who was the head of, of the sports division uh, was really pissed off as it started going because they didn't have any ratings. He thought this was a terrible event. And then Sunday came and you had this crazy, crazy finish where Bernard Langer missed the putt uh, and gave the U.S. the victory. And suddenly, like Jack Welch, the, the chairman of GE, called him up and said, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And just basically overnight, it went from something that was still kind of dubious to something that was this really, really dramatic thing that NBC loved so much. And it's just grown ever since until it's the monster that it is now. You talked about the commercialism of it, or like at least like saving it there. And yeah. now obviously we know it's big, big, big business. It floats or had floated the European tour, you know, like every other year, it kind of gets them back in the, um, the profitability. Yeah. Um, did you, so we have insurances companies, cars, everything. Like it looks like one of those soccer matches, like the post, like when, you know, the back, the background where it's like yeah. brand, brand, <laughs> yeah, brand, yeah. brand, brand. So I assume you dedicated like 50 pages or a couple chapters to the Aon Nicholas Jacqueline award. Yeah, <laughs> captivate the current state of the Ryder Cup. Is that what a big chunk of this book is about? Do you, do you know if DJ still has the plate? <laughs> that, that is a great question. Uh, I don't know about that, but yeah, Brendan, to your focus, to your point, if you like corporate branding and sponsorship details, this is the book for you. It's not just fifty <laughs> pages. There's hundreds and hundreds of pages of just going into contract details, uh, re reprinting contracts in some cases for chapters at a time. Yeah, so that that is really my my wheelhouse. Uh, We're making up awards. The Aon Nicholas Jacqueline Sportsman, <laughs> whatever it is, it's it's just an amazing thing that how it's evolved, where they can sort of add on and on. But yeah. like Andy said, the sort of the backlash and in, or integrity or core of this being such a 
howitzer of an event has not changed despite all the money around it yeah and the money that's not up for the players hasn't really changed why do you think that is in terms of of uh at least the players motivations and the players interests and passion for it it's pretty funny the um they so they now they give them a chunk of, of money that they can use for charity on, on both sides. But right. this has been a fight in the past. Like the Europeans at, at one point fought to make more money. Marco Mira, I think, made a remark. But yep. it's all, it's kind of funny the way, especially in America, how it works. Where if these players ask for more money, the immediate reaction of the fans is to be angry at them. Yep. And and you know it's like it. I think in terms of like the morality of should they get paid? To me, it's very similar to the NCAA. Of like, absolutely, they should get paid. Like these guys are playing this exhibition. That brings in an insane amount of money. It's only good because they decide to play, right? If the 12 top Americans didn't play next time, people would watch it, but it wouldn't be nearly as good or profitable, and it would start a slow decline where the Ryder Cup would die. Like, it depends on the buy-in, and they don't get paid for it. It's really, really something um, where I think, in a strange way, the conservatism of the sport works against them. Because it's very much a thing of like, oh, these rich divas, they look at them like being greedy and wanting money. Uh, and so nobody kind of says it anymore. They just sort of accept whatever like extremely modest bit they're, you know, given to give to the charity of their choice and they go play. And that wouldn't work if it didn't have such status, right? The writer, if the Ryder Cup hadn't gained such status over time, that wouldn't be possible. But now it is. And so they're kind of. I don't know what the players think. Honestly, I, I think they just accept it. Or they're if they don't, they're kind of handcuffed. They're never going to get paid for this. At one point, maybe I maybe, uh, maybe one, live golf should start an opposite field of that. <laughs> <laughs> at one point, I knew the gown stipend for the significant others, and it was substantial. But like it was, you know, uh, all things told, uh, what the thing generates and what the players are receiving, it's not. I forget what it was. I'm going to wildly misquote it, so I don't want to say it. But it was a a lot of money for like the wardrobe for the significant other that that comes but yeah in terms of monetary you know inducements there's very very few yeah i mean, I mean if- from a commercialization standpoint it is is the most commercialized maybe outside of the fedex cup which is you know a a series of events right wouldn't you say that this is the most commercialized event in in golf <laughs> It's yeah, it's certainly close, if not the most. And, you know, I, I spoke a lot with the guys running things at Whistling Straits and like the guy, Jason Mangle, who is the tournament director, a huge, like really the overwhelming part of his responsibility is filling hospitality suites, uh, keeping these sponsorships. It was a huge headache for him when COVID delayed it because there was a stipulation in their contracts that everyone could just back out. And a lot of them did. So he had to like hustle to like fill those again. But yeah, it is it, the name of the game is like corporate sponsors, corporate hospitality tents, all that stuff. Um, because it is such a moneymaker and they depend on it, uh, like Brendan was saying, especially in Europe. Hey, can I, uh, one question, this, we'll get back to the book because you're such an expert on this topic. Um, do you think this is replicable in any way with anything else? The president's cup is a thing that exists. Um, was this just total lightning in a bottle, the ascendance of Europe, like I, I think like if any organization could replicate this, they would try. Yeah. And I'm sure they are trying. Do you see those efforts out there? What's like, an ex- do you have any examples of that? And if it's possible, can it be done? One, one thing that I brought up uh, in an old podcast I did was, um, Oh, I hope I don't forget the name, but I think I will. Essentially it was a swimming thing where they said, we're going to do a Ryder cup, but U S versus Australia. Uh, we're going to do, Oh, it's like the duel in the pool. That's what it was called. Okay. The duel in the pool. And you're like, that's a really cool idea. I mean, like Olympic swimming is so much fun. Not that I ever watch swimming outside the Olympics, but 
that's yeah. a blast. And like, that's, that's a, you know, seems like a good idea. Uh, and they tried it. And I think the Americans won, you know, like four times in a row. And then the thing, the TV people were just like, this is, we're not going to pay for this anymore. And, and it kind of, and it kind of died. And yeah, no, I, I guess like my only point would be like the, I think the Ryder cup benefited from the fact that when it was 50 years of American blowouts, this was sort of a pre big dollar television era. So they could afford just to do it. Yeah. Okay. It's an exhibition match every two years. It's the players probably enjoy traveling, whatever. Uh, if that happened now, it would be over. And like the president's cup would be an interesting example of we've seen that, right? We've seen America just crush the international team for, I don't know. Is it 30 years now? I don't know exactly when it started, but it's getting close to 30 years. Uh, and that, that stays because the PGA tour, right. Is the, is the financial backer of it. And that could get good. Like that could be a really fun event. I think like the Melbourne one was, was actually a, a ton of fun. I was there and I had a good time at it. If the international team started winning, that could be good. But if it were up to its own devices, if it needed, you know, TV profitability and didn't have the PGA tour behind it, that would be, I, I think completely dead by now. So it's very hard. Hey, this is a segue back to back to your book here and kind of what happened last year is uh, a take I had in, in the in the fall was that the the president's cup over the next 20 years is actually going to be more competitive uh, than the the Ryder Cup. Uh, do you think like, you know, obviously everybody likes to make proclamations. We've been in a European uh, era of dominance lately. Yeah. Is is it now has it shifted back to where the US is 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 uh is the dominant team and obviously that would be center around the topic of your book. Yeah, I feel like right now you're setting me up for a soundbite that's going to get Rory McIlroy to yell at me after they win in Italy <laughs> like he like he did to Shipnuck, <laughs> right? Like so like Shipnuck wrote the glib piece, right? That he was like America's just going to win, it's over. I, so I will say this. I, I am on record. People can go look it up. I predicted a U.S. like route uh, before Whistling Straits. And the Ryder Cup's interesting in that we learn a lot about how good a captain is afterward. Like, you know, sometimes things come out afterward that we don't know going in. Here's what I think. I think the task force was this big joke. Everybody laughed at it. And they probably should have because task force is a funny name. I think it was one of the most effective things the U.S. golf could ever have done I think it really instituted a good system. I think they keep learning from it. I thought Davis Love was a great captain. Furyk got really unlucky in Paris for a couple of reasons, but then Stricker was an incredible captain and they've got these great players. I, I personally think, yes, I personally think the U S is on, they're about to start dominating in a huge way, especially with all like the European stalwarts basically aging out of this thing. Hey, is there a singular person you would credit with the task force? it's tough. I think if you wanted to pick one person, it would be Davis love. Um, you know, he really, really has always cared about the Ryder cup. He really did a good job in 2012 as captain and had this just wild Sunday miracle at Medina thing happen to him. And what that did was set everything back. He had taken a lot of the great ideas. Paul Azinger had, who I think is like, if you're looking for somebody who is like our Tony Jacklin, the guy who first had some really, really profound, good ideas about how to turn this around. It was Azinger that was forgotten in, in 2010. Davis Love took a lot of his good ideas and was on the verge of a, you know, blowout Ryder Cup win, you know, leading 10 to 6 going into Sunday. That turns around, then all of a sudden you get Ted Bishop at the PGA of America who is like, these guys are soft. We need to do something dramatic and gets, you know, Tom Watson in there, who is the worst captain America has ever had to go blow things at Glen Eagles, which in turn though gives the US permission led by Davis Love to sort of say, look, here's what we need to do. Here's what I think is going to work and this task force is going to be big. 
Davis was big. Actually, Phil Mickelson was really big in it because he wanted things to change. Yeah. Um, you know, what he did at Glen Eagles was actually probably pretty important. Um, yeah. You know, I'm a huge Phil guy. <laughs> no. Uh, and so, yeah. So like, I the, thought that would be the answer. I thought like I was leading. I, I didn't want to sure. lead you, but I, I think most people would say Phil. But you're, you're really, you know, you've done the reporting here and DL3 is the guy. In terms of publicly... Um, giving the u.s leeway to transform things radically yeah phil played a huge role there's absolutely no doubt about it um davis love and then you know the guys who had been there forever the guys like Furek, guys like stricker who had played in it and seen what had gone wrong um and then yeah like i said going back to azinger like he was he's the one who laid the foundation for these ideas that are now seeing the u.s you know be really successful a question i have is this is off topic of your book, but kind of like the future of the Ryder Cup, it seems like we've got a little bit of a, a captain glut. Uh, on it, on either side, there's different issues. You know, and obviously, the, there's an interview, I can't remember exactly who, was it Zach Johnson talking about maybe there was uh, in a recent tournament how they had a hole with Beth Page. Um, yeah, it was Davis, yeah. Uh, Jane Davis. Ryan picked up on that. He's yeah. the one who pursued uh, that. So, Apologies, but Davis <laughs> says that. And then on the European side, it seems like Liv is actually causing a real issue with captaincies. It's funny on the on the European side because before the Liv stuff, you're like, how are they all going to get in there to be captain? You've got like Poulter, Westwood, Rose, Sergio, on and on. There's like 12 guys. And you go, oh, they're literally all going to Saudi Arabia. So now it's like Rory's going to be playing captain or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's a big deal. I mean, Henrik, they delayed their captaincy pick forever uh, this time because it was supposed to be Henrik Stenson. It was a no-brainer. But it was all of a sudden, it was like, is he going to go to Saudi Arabia? And so Luke Donald was back in the mix. Um, and I guess they must have gotten assurances from, from Stenson. But yeah, I, I think to what you said, the American side is the really interesting one of who they're grooming for this because Zach Johnson is the one that was in the pipeline among like the sort of younger guys. He's going to be the captain of Italy, but then you've had like, you know, Davis is doing the president's cup again. You've kind of had this cycle of sort of older guys. So the, I don't have an answer to your question, but the answer will be when they name their assistant captains for the president's cup and for the Ryder cup for the next two. Once you see those, whether it's Kucher or whatever, like it's, that's going to be the next guys. Could be Ricky. <laughs> Could be Ricky, yeah. While we're talking live and sort of structural, sort of underpinnings of, of everything that's happening, uh, I would say we're we're skeptical, not cynical, but uh, we're a skeptical bunch. Uh, is the PGA Tour now being involved with the European Tour via the Strategic Alliance? Are they going to try to get their fingers in this thing they've lusted and it gazed at from afar? Like, oh, my God, how do we get that? This thing, like, just spun up out of nowhere to become the biggest event of golf like they'd want the players. Is the tour going to get their fingers on the in this event via the other side of the Atlantic, the PGA Tour, and somehow... I don't know. I don't want to say negatively impact, but do you see them sort of getting involved here, getting a cut? <laughs> I think, you know, it's part of me roots for it because it's such a funny, clever way to go about things. You know, we've yeah. we've talked for years about, wow, the PGA of America was really lucky they kept the Ryder Cup and it was just yeah. a flu fluke of history, right, that they did because it was, again, nothing then. And so you always kind of focus on this American thing and it's like, oh no, they flanked them. <laughs> they, <laughs> they flanked yeah. them. They went to Europe. Um 
That, you know, actually, that that's something I really should have thought of before, but haven't of, yeah, if they got into the European side of the Ryder Cup, what would they do? How, th- how would things be different from a management angle? You would hope that it's like hands off, right? That, you know, right. That, but, you know, the European tour runs it for the European side right now. So if the European tour is the PGA tour at some point in the future, then the PGA tour will run it. And that would be really interesting. I, I would love if they just like, you know, banned Americans from playing for the American team. No, no, who knows? Who knows? Um, I I don't think it would ruin the event at all. I think it would probably be pretty similar. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I don't think there'll be any substantive change. It's just people, conspiracy theorists in the background. I I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's a hundred meeting rooms at their global home in in Ponte Vedra. And you got to figure the Ryder Cup's going to come up once or twice when you got that many meeting rooms and that many people. People are going to talk. I mean, they effectively tried to make their own Ryder Cup. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's right. completely true. Um, yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah, and, and the President's Cup may become popular at some point, like really on on that Ryder Cup level. I don't. It's going to be years before that happens, but it's got to be tempting. Stick yep. your finger in that Ryder Cup pie. Um, all right, let's get to the back to the book. I know we love banding about conspiracy theories. Uh, what was the writing process? How long? I know you've been like chronicling the Ryder Cup for various outlets. Really you know what since 2012 would that was that the first one yeah, yeah. for grantland yeah yeah grantland medina grantland. right yeah. ah, that man. was where you fell in love love with this event right medina or did you, you've been watching it previously I i've always yeah i've always loved the Ryder cup um I, like i think maybe the first memory i've had was was brookline which was late in life you know that i would have been 16 late relatively but i wasn't a golfer growing up so you know for me to i remember have Memories of watching Brookline, how great that was. But yeah, 2012 was the first one I covered, and it was an amazing one to cover. And that definitely cemented, like, oh my God, like the romance of this event is incredible. And, you know, watching Poulter do what he did, that that yeah. for sure, yeah, ironed it out in my head. So for this book, The Cup They Couldn't Lose, what was the process like? How, when did you start writing it? How, why did you decide the time frame you wanted to cover, the subjects you wanted to cover? How, how long did it take to write? What was the process? Yeah, so I mean, I... I we signed the deal in 2019. I'd always kind of wanted to write a Ryder Cup book and I had intended to do it in 2016. And I was about to start writing a proposal when I found out that John Feinstein was writing a Ryder Cup book in 2016. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to compete with John Feinstein. That's silly. Um, and so, yeah. So anyway, we 2019, the first event I really covered was the President's Cup in terms of like this long, this long path to, uh, to Whistling Straits. Um, then, yeah, it was just, you know, obviously it got delayed by the pandemic. So it was it was a lot of like looking at the history, the European history of the Ryder Cup, talking to guys who are going to be playing in this one, um, talking with people up at Whistling Straits. There were a lot of trips to Whistling Straits, trying to like establish a relationship with Patrick Carrington and Steve Stricker um, and, you know, doing the best I could with that. And, you know, you guys know it's like it's always such a pain to like try to get access to current players, to current personalities. And so a lot of it was just that annoying legwork to do that kind of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, the, I think the, probably the most interesting part of the process came after the Ryder cup when we wanted to get it out in the spring of this year, like Feinstein's book came out a year later, which I, I thought was, I don't know if that was a tactical error, but it seems like a long time from the Ryder cup to be getting the book out. Plus nobody's thinking about golf in the fall, right? Everybody's thinking about it right now. This is sort of the peak season. Um, and so I basically I had to write the book in a month and oh. there wasn't any that much that I could do beforehand, right? A lot depended because your whole thesis is, wow, look, America's really good and they're paving the way. 
But then if you do all this work for that and they end up losing the Ryder cup, you're like, Oh shit. Like, what do I do? Um, and so, yeah, so I had to do this. I had to write this book in a month and eventually got another week, right. From the, from the publishers who were great by the way. Um, but yeah, it was like a five week process to write this 360 page book or whatever it is. Uh, it was definitely, I don't recommend it. It was really stressful, but in some ways I think good because there was no time to think. It was just like every single day, I rented an office because I couldn't be around, like I couldn't be home and in focus. I rented an office, went in every day and just had to like grind out like 5,000, 6,000 words. It was insane. I don't think I could ever do it again oh. in my life, but it was, uh, I, yeah. I can't remember the writer's uh, name, but I it, it might have been a, a movie, uh, a guy that writes scripts for movies, but I, I heard that they go to a hotel and he won't leave the hotel room until the thing's written. So he could yeah. be there for three weeks. He could be there for two days. He just won't leave. Every meal is room service. The, yeah. there, that's his process. Like he goes to a <laughs> yeah. place. I think he, I think he actually has them take the TV out of the room. Like there's <laughs> right, no right. distraction. It's amazing what you put, when you make yourself do it and the ability of going to an office, how it like gets you away and, uh, and makes it, that's the spot I write. There was, I, I think five days in, uh, I was already not on the pace that I needed to set. And so this was like a day where I was like, all right, we're going to do the entire Steve Stricker chapter where I talk about his whole life. You know, I, I went to visit Stricker's family. I, I, I covered like his whole, his whole thing growing up in Wisconsin. And I wrote this chapter. I was really happy with it. It was about 6,000 words. And all of a sudden my Microsoft word screen turned to stars this has never happened to me before i have no idea what this is but if you google it it's a real problem and it's completely lost i had not saved it at any point and even if i did save it i think i immediately tried to like auto save which was the worst thing i could have done because i'm just saving stars and so there was there was definitely a moment there where it was like you could see the your life path veering off in two directions where you either take this as a sign from a universe that you're doomed and like just like i'm not going to write this book ever or I immediately don't even like whine about it. Don't even complain beyond like a tweet on Twitter or something like just immediately start writing again. And I did, I took that one because it's, it is a thing of like, you have to force yourself to do it. And the consequences of not doing it are like existentially terrifying. Like, Oh, I had a book deal and didn't write a book. So, so there's no choice, but to just like plow ahead. Were you tolerable to your friends and family during this? Or were you just like not around enough to even be, one way or the other. I think I was okay. I definitely didn't speak with any friends, but I think with my family, I was all right because it was nice at the end of the day to get home. And, but you know, actually I was probably a jerk. No, let me, let me go back. I probably was short tempered uh, for this month. Was there an interviewee or subject of research that most surprised you in a good way or even a bad way, but like, wow, that guy's got some joie de vivre or he's got some takes. He's got some uh, interesting background, like somebody who surprised you that thought it might be a, a dial tone or, or, or might be a dud that, that really popped for your book. Um, you know, I'll give you two. One of them that everybody knows would be uh, Tony Jacklin, right? He was, I didn't realize how interesting and how funny and how good he was. And he's an older guy. He lives down in Florida. Did you interview him in person? Oh yeah. Or did you do it? Uh, yeah, because it's hard. Yeah. He, he, you know, yeah, he has some hearing issues, and it's hard to do it over over uh, like a virtual. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, I went down to Florida. This was just before the pandemic. Like I caught him right between Bay Hill and the Players Championship. Um, the player in, in you know 2020, right yeah. before everything went went haywire. Um, and yeah, we sat in his club, and he talked to me for like three hours about his whole history as Ryder Cup captain, his history as a player. And 
Yeah, he was just, he has a ton of joie de vivre and he's had a crazy interesting life. Um, financial difficulties, like, you know, his, his wife passed away in tragic circumstances when he was younger. His whole playing career is fascinating. Uh, you know, he, he was the guy that finally won a major for the UK after like a 40 year drought. So he was this big pioneer figure. Um, and then he lost to Lee Trevino at the open championship when Trevino chipped in on a hole and is very open today. I think he was 28 years old, very open that it just destroyed him. Like he felt like he blew that and he's, he was never the same after that. And he speaks honest, maybe because he's older, whatever, but he speaks so honestly about that stuff and about the Ryder cup. So I, yeah, I absolutely loved interviewing him. Paul McGinley, I think is, I got him the day before the pandemic hit at the players championship. Again, three hour conversation. Nobody is smarter than that guy about golf. I think period, but especially about the Ryder cup. Um, and then the other guy, um, Dennis Tiziani, I don't know if you guys know that name, but he used to be the head coach at Wisconsin, uh, and his daughter married Steve Stricker and his son is Steve Stricker's agent. So, and he was Steve Stricker's coach for a long time. And so they're inextricably tied to the Stricker family. So anyway, you go up to Wisconsin and you see all these people and they are like almost to a person, exactly what you would imagine from like Lutheran Wisconsin people. Like very, like I, one of my, the funniest things was his parents were so nice to me. Um, you know, I had, I was trying to get them going in conversation and I had watched Stricker at the president's cup very, he has a very kind of observing personality. Like he, he's always standing back watching things. And so I asked his parents, I was like, you know, what was he like as a kid? Cause this is what I saw at the president's cup. Was he always somebody who was looking at everything and really kind of taking everything in, you know, what was he like? And they, they both look at each other and they go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I asked them later in the interview, you know, describe his personality to me. And they're like, I don't really know. And you're like, wow, that's interesting because I wouldn't expect that from parents, but it's not that they didn't know. It's just that there, there's like a, you know, there's a kind yeah. of wall in front of how they communicate. They're not like talkers, but anyway, Dennis Tiziani, this guy was one of the funniest people I met. And there's a ton with him in the book. Um, he was full of like quotes by Lao Tzu. And, and then he, at one point he, uh, he was talking about Phil Mickelson and he said to me, he's like, you know, look at Phil Mickelson. Why the fuck would you ever take this guy for a Ryder Cup team? And it just like saying things to me where I'm like, oh man, that's so interesting. Uh, <laughs> and, and other little things like that, that you're like, you know, also I know he has Steve Stricker's ear. So when you look at things that happen later, like Mickelson not being on the team, despite winning a major, yeah, there's a thousand reasons for that. But you start to go back to these conversations and go, huh, if he's thinking that and he has such an influence, I wonder if Stricker was also thinking that. And so there's a lot of that little stuff, but he was a, a great person to talk to. Was there any uh, tidbits about Mickelson as an assistant captain? Obviously, this is if you if you chart back the timeline of the last year, this is probably a time where there's a lot going on behind the scenes with Phil and uh, oh, yeah. maybe other agents um, <laughs> right. uh, and other agencies that have particular interests. And he's meanwhile, you know, kind of. In a way, snubbed. I, I don't know of any major champions that don't get the call. Um, yeah. You know, especially just a few months earlier. Yep. And um, was there anything that was interesting that came out with Phil as the assistant captain? You know, the, the funny thing is there wasn't. And that speaks, I think, to how effective Stricker was as a captain. Because like you said, like the dude is not only did he just win a major, but he's Phil Mickelson. Right. I mean, like his reputation precedes him and all that. Not only did he did Stricker smoothly not take him for the team, but when he became the assistant, 
everybody's like, oh, I wonder if Phil will actually run the team. You know, if his personality is so big that look what he did at Glen Eagles, the revolution. Like, I wonder if he's going to be the man controlling things. Stricker sidelined him so effectively. All this guy did at the Ryder Cup was walk by the crowds in his sunglasses and, and wave to people. Wow. You know, and he had, you know, he had his own little pod. He had his own little group that he was working with. Uh, but he just completely Stricker nullified Phil Mickelson as a distracting force. And actually, he did the same with the, the Shambo Kepka feud, I thought, too. Uh, so, yeah, I think that was the most interesting about thing about Phil is that there was nothing interesting about Phil. What about uh, what about uh, Thick Boy? He he left the next that's, day for uh, that's Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, <laughs> I figured that, 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 <laughs> yeah. shorthand. Okay. Uh, my, my favorite is Thomas the, the Thirst day. Engine. I think that's like the most brilliant things you guys have done. But yeah, yeah. So Thick Boy, chocolate milk. So, he uh, he uh, he headed out the next day for a long drive. Is there any any interesting anecdotes uh, of for the week of uh, of Bryson that? That you picked up on you know just that obviously his huge drive on that one hole where phil went nuts and was like chest bumping him no the, the thing, so much of the Ryder cup is utilizing the people you have correctly and not letting it become this you know horrible distraction not not letting the worst sides of their personality dictate what happens and again <laughs> and again with bryson like my answer is boring because stricker was so good right like he just he he somehow convinced Bryson that it was just fine, even though he's like this top level player. He's only going to play twice, you know, during the during the group stages, uh, the pairs matches. And then he sends him out to play against um, uh, Sergio on Sunday and he drives the green on number one. And he was just like such an effective weapon. Right. He won two point two and a half points out of three matches with Scheffler on two of them. And yeah, I mean, it just like, I don't, again, it, it speaks to the job they did. So sorry, no, no drama, no intrigue. He was just like a, just a, he was just himself there. Just a good golfer. You bring up Scheffler and I think it's uh, you know, something I thought about a lot when he won the masters was the Ryder cup yeah. and how big of a star he was in the Ryder cup and that Rom in particular, that Rom singles match yep. um, where Rom's the hottest player in the world. No, no question, the best player in the world, and he's steamrolling Americans. Mm-hmm. And then he runs into Sky Scheffler, which everybody at the time assumed was just a throwaway match. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because at the match play the year that year, um, Scheffler had beat Rom and he had beat um, Ian Poulter along the way to going to the finals and losing to Billy Horschel. And I texted Stricker after saying, like, you know, I'm writing something. Do you want to just comment on the fact that you know you've got two Americans in the finals? And he said, I love to see the Americans, especially Scotty Scheffler, who beat Rahm and Poulter, two of their big guys. Didn't mention Horschel at all, which, again, interesting later when you consider that, you know, he didn't pick him. Uh, And so, yeah, so that him beating Rahm was part of the reason he was on the Ryder Cup team. And then it was so poetic that you get this guy, Scheffler, who was if there was a controversial pick, it was him. I don't actually think it was that controversial, but he was the unexpected one. Right. It was maybe maybe they roll the dice with Patrick Reed to see if he's healthy or maybe it's somebody else. He was the last guy picked. And not only do you pick him last, but he's of course very happy to play twice with Bryson DeChambeau, who might be a difficult guy to partner. Otherwise he only plays twice. So he's well rested. And then when that match was announced, I actually said on Twitter, this is like going to be some serious back padding here, but I actually said on Twitter, (laughs) I think that's the match. The Americans are most likely to win because I was going back in history and looking at, for example, Rory at Hazeltine, where he did the same thing in a losing effort. Like he was the engine. He was the man for the Europeans. And he expended yeah. all this energy playing all four sessions and was absolutely wiped out, right, for the for the match against Patrick Reed on Sunday. And Reed beat him. 
Justin Thomas was a similar thing in Melbourne at the President's Cup. He was the one who saved the U.S. when things looked really disastrous over the first four days. He was the only guy with any energy, and he was carrying America on his back, and he did an amazing job. Then Sunday came, and he lost in his singles match. He was one of the few Americans to have lost. Same exact formula. Like I knew Rom was going to be absolutely exhausted. He was playing Scheffler. And and it did. It played out kind of kind of just like I thought. Where I I forget was Scheffler four up after four holes. It was yeah five. Yeah, it, yeah, it was, yeah it was like five. It was like immediately over. Right. It was just like there was no question who was going to win from the very start. And it, you know, Stricker didn't pick him. He, Stricker didn't know he was going to play Rom on Sunday, but he did know he was going to be fresh, right? Because he had only played two matches. He did know he's like a killer in singles match play because he had shown it already that year. Obviously, he showed it again this year, and it just worked out like. It, perfectly like it was it was a brilliant strategy and then a great piece of luck to have him go against rom something i'm discerning from your your uh you know you think stricker didn't really make any mistakes i my question is was his biggest mistake not calling billy horschel to inform him that he wasn't on the team (laughs) billy was mad billy was not happy about that we still hear about that not getting a call but so i think stricker's story was that he talked to him and 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 horschel said I know I'm not going to be picked, but I think you should pick. I can't even remember who it was. Maybe Kevin Na or so, something. He's like, I, I know I'm not going to be picked, but I think, oh no, it was Sam Burns. That's who it was. He's like, I think you should pick Sam Burns. So Stricker yeah. interpreted that as Horschel knowing he wasn't on the team and thinking that he didn't need to call him. So I, I, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I mean, Horschel's hilarious. It's hilarious that he said that. Uh, I think he'd be a good writer, Cupper, but I don't think Stricker was being malicious. I think he, I think he thought there was an understanding in place. Uh, I I think Billy boy would actually be, he's a good away Ryder cup player where, where they, you know, like if you think about players that would play well at Le Golf national, the, the play where the Paris massacre happened. Billy Horschel is like a guy that thrives on that type of setup. And he'd be, you know, you know, he'd be so into it. He would care more than anybody, probably care more than anybody wants anybody to care about it. <laughs> yeah, too you much. Know, too much. Yeah. Epic tantrums from him that week. Yeah. Oh, he'd be great. Kisner would have been really great on that course. Yeah. I, yeah. It's one of those things where those are two guys where you're like, I hope before it's all over, they get a Ryder Cup. They probably won't at this point, but I hope they do. Related to that, um, part of what makes the Ryder Cup has made it maybe the best event in golf are not necessarily like the ROMs. Or I, I don't know the number one ranked player in the world. It's like a guy like Poulter, right? Or yeah. a guy like Sergio before he had a major. Uh, Azinger was a thorn in the side. The guys that like basically when we talk about why the PGA Tour exists, this current like top heavy money structure, the guys bringing the ratings, those aren't necessarily the ones that have made the Ryder Cup must see mm-hmm. or given us the character and flavor that that has made it such a great event. Um. Do you feel like looking at the current landscape, you're so good at like reading between the lines of tea leaves, personalities, who might be those sort of antagonists, those villains might be too strong a word um, for this next generation of Ryder Cups that sort of make it what it is. Like the the guys that the other team does not like, the other fans Mm -hmm. do not like, but give it a ton of flavor and character. Yeah, yeah, I think that's actually a big concern. I have memories of when Poulter was playing his first Ryder Cups and like had his spiked hair and just my stepfather, like just, you know, your average conservative golf fan, how much he hated him and, yeah, <laughs> and Sergio. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. that is, that's what, that's what does it. That's what makes the Ryder Cup so great. Like Poulter, you know, this would have been like 2004, or 2006 when they were just destroying us. Um, yeah, who is it? 
like on the European side, especially you were anyone with passion. I mean, you're looking at guys like Matt Fitzpatrick, um, Tommy Fleetwood, so some Hatton. of the young guys, like maybe a hat. Yeah. Maybe, maybe know. Hatton. Like he, he got really fired up when he made his putt. Um, then, then yeah. After that, you start to, all we have to look at are older guys. Like the next would be like, you know, Shane Lowry and Rory, right. They're still vaguely youngish kind of, um, and then everybody else is leaving. All the guys that are the famously passionate Ryder Cup guys are on the way out. So I don't know. I, the truth is, I don't know some of the younger up-and-coming European guys enough to know who that's going to be. Like, I don't know what the Hoy guards are like. You know what I mean? I don't know. Right. I don't know what some of the young Italian golfers that everybody talks. I don't know what they're like yet because I haven't seen them and haven't, you know. So I, I hope there's somebody out there. But it also feels like we are in a global era of golf where uniqueness of personality declines with time. <laughs> right? right. Right. right? Like, yeah. like yeah. someone like Ian Poulter, or Lee Westwood, they still kind of came up. Like they're a little bit older than us. They still kind of came up in the pre, like everybody's like a global corporate product era. Like they yeah. still have some years, like before the internet, you know, stuff like that. And so they're a little bit more unique and, you know, maybe the answer is there's nobody like that. I hope that's not the case. It feels like the Euros do not like Justin Thomas or did not like him, at least <laughs> yeah. in this last Ryder Cup. Well, he's constantly complaining about uh, like doing the thing where you hold up the putter, like of how long they made you putt. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> like he's correct. constantly doing things like that. He's incredibly intense. Um, I did a story uh, about the, you know, the concession where, where Jack Nicholas gave the putt to Tony Jacklin. Well, they were at, they played the WGC at the concession in 2020. Yeah, 2020. Uh, and I asked a lot of the players, you know, would you have done that? Would you have given that? And first of all, 80% of them had no idea what I was talking about, which is funny. <laughs> like John, John Rahm, to his credit, John Rahm was like, I hope I would do that. And he went to this whole historical diatribe. John Rahm really understands golf and the history of golf. But Justin Thomas was just like, uh, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but no, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> in, in like the most flatline thing possible. So yeah, he's... Yeah. He's a, like, he was chugging the beer. He was chugging the beer on the tee too. I know that rub. So I you people know, I had, didn't like I had that a conversation with the, with the, with the player and mm-hmm. some caddies that that did not appreciate that. No, this yeah, this was this source asked to not be named, but it was yeah, it was somebody on the European side who was it was kind of funny. They're like, you know, if Arnie was here, would Arnie have done that? <laughs> like, <laughs> that like that was kind of their take, and uh, yeah, yeah. So they they didn't like that. Um, then he did. I don't know if you guys remember the weird thing at the Melbourne Presidents Cup where he did like yeah. the T.O. quote, like, yeah. I love me some me. Oh, yeah. I was like, that was like, for me, that was awkward. Like, I'm watching it. I'm like, I, I, I didn't dislike it on a sense of like, oh, you shouldn't showboat on the green. But it was kind of weird and made me sort of I was just like, that's I wish he hadn't done that. That's weird. I think that's the thing with uh, with some of JT's like antics that that get me. You know, just like you know, probably some of the origins right. of, of Thomas right. the Thirst Engine, but they just like they don't look comfortable or natural yeah. when he does them. It we- looks like he's trying to put on a show. I don't know. Well, like well, the thing with "I love me some me" that had to be planned, right? Like it's not just something yes. that like that had to be in his head at some point. He's like, I know what I'm going to do if I make a big putt. Like, like <laughs> this right. is gonna this is gonna blow minds when I do that. When I next time I make a huge one, and he did it, and yeah, yeah. So, um. Last one, and then we'll get you out of here. We're, we're taking all your time here. Um, you did a ton of research on the modern era, like the, what the modern processes. How much do statistics and, and analytics, like we know that's a, a well, we we know it's a massive part on both sides of, of the, the operation here, and and maybe it wasn't for the U.S. at some points, and, and not enough. Yeah, 
Um, do you feel like that threatens the cup in a way to make it sort of too formulaic? We hear that about baseball a little bit. Like it's, it's sort of taken some of the excitement or character unpredictability out of the game where it's just whatever it's uh, strikeouts and homers, things like that uh, shift. Do you feel like how much a, how much do statistics and analytics play in the operation on both sides? And, and do you feel like that could become a negative at any point? Yeah. People already talk about that. You know, for this book, one of my favorite things I wrote was a chapter on like the numbers wars or the data wars, whatever you want to call it. And I talked to Jason Aquino who runs this outfit called scouts consulting, which is the, you know, they contract with the U S Ryder cup team. They're actually going to do stuff for them for the president's cup as well. And they have their opposite number, uh, the 21st group in Europe. And they, they pour over the data. They analyze it like crazy. They, they can, they can go so far as to say, here's how you should, here's where the optimal place is to put this T on this hole based on the lineup you've got. Here are the players who would be really good together. And, you know, the captains listen to them a lot, uh, but they also go their own way sometimes. Like, for example, the Morikawa DJ pairing was something that the stats said, this probably won't work. Um, and, you know, obviously it did really work. So it's not, it's not a hundred percent thing, um, but they, they do use them in a lot of effective ways. And I think, to your question, it makes it really hard for a road Ryder Cup team to win because the advantage that the the home team has is that they can set up the course to their liking. That was a really inexact science before the stats guys came in. Now it's an exact science. And so it gives you like Paris was the ultimate example of like Jim Furyk was a good captain. Everybody respected him. He was following the template that has been so successful the last couple of years and they set up this course and completely befuddled the Americans. They completely shocked them and they destroyed them, right? So, yeah, I, I think people are talking about that. People are going so far as to talk about maybe we shouldn't let the home team set up the course at all. Maybe it should be a neutral, like, you know, the PGA of America and the European Tour working together to determine what this course is going to look like. So that conversation is being had. Personally, I think it's a cool element. I think, like, yeah, let's make it really hard to win on the road. I think that's fun. But – We've now had, what, three three blowouts at home in a row. And if you go back to 2008, uh, no, I'm sorry, 2006, all but Medina have been home blowouts. And so, yeah, if you go 10 more years with no drama, uh, that might be something that people do. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, that sounds like you got a great chapter in there on that. Aquino, the scouts guy. So you, you kind of hit this from all angles. So we appreciate the time. Again, what's the name of the book? The Cup? The cup they couldn't lose. It has a long subtitle. I'm embarrassed. I actually don't know. No, the cup they couldn't lose. It's like, I think it's, oh, here we go. The cup they couldn't lose. I love that. Colon. The cup they couldn't lose, colon. America, the Ryder Cup, and the long road to whistling straights. So there you go. All right. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, that's available Tuesday, May 10th, but you can pre-order it. Uh, at your major bookstores or the indie bookstores, we hear they'll be. Yeah, on the go walk into your indie yeah. bookstore. Walk into any indie and bookstore. demand <laughs> that yeah. they get this book. Put some that's, granola. That's a pre-order. There's Let's, a pre-order. That, right that there. is how you go. pre-order the analog way. That's right. Put a little granola in your backpack. Head out to the uh, <laughs> local indie shop and find the cup that can lose. Uh, Shane, thank you so much for the time. Uh, we'll continue reading your work elsewhere, but for now, we're, we're excited to get our hands on the cup they couldn't lose. Thank you guys so much. This was fun.